realistic statements, right? If you know, you know. We have to write these things all the time. I've always been befuddled by them. I mean, I'm sending you a play I wrote, and now you want me to write a statement about my artistic point of view? So you're not going to read the play, or... Uh... I looked back on artistic statements I've written over the years. I bloviated about the ephemeral nature of theater. I quoted Sam Shepard. I talked about how I want this more than anybody else. Because that can be quantified, right? I went on embarrassingly long about how my plays are acts of desperation to connect with other artists. There were times when I'd write openly about my personal life, or politics, or some unique desire to escape the black hole of failure. Nobody really tells you what these statements are supposed to be. But if you want to get accepted into the thing, you gotta write one. Sometimes they give a prompt, but how many different ways can there really be for Tell us how this opportunity is right for you at this moment. They all drive toward the same opaque topic of Who are you as an artist? And why? We just wrote a play. Isn't showing better than telling? I currently am repurposing the same statement I wrote 18 months ago. This one is essentially begging someone to take my outstretched hand and pull me up toward the wanted heaven of success. However, what I've come to realize is that all these statements boil down to that age-old question we've been asking since grade school and tiny handwritten notes pass back and forth. Check this box or that box. I like you. Do you like me? And I am this close to blowing up all my artistic statements and simply passing that note along with my play. Yes or no? All you need to do is choose. James Polak, and this is the Subtext Podcast. If you're new here, each month I talk to a playwright about life and playwriting and whatever else might come up in the conversation. This month, my guest is Rajiv Joseph. If you want to follow the Subtext on socials, you can find us on Insta and Twitter and the Facebook. If you feel like uh, emailing with something profound or you just want to pass me a note, the email address is the subtext podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can call 505 302 1235. If you say something really nice, I might even use the message on a future episode. Okay? Okay. Good. Rajiv Joseph is the author of some of my all time favorite plays Guards of the Taj. So damn good. 
Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which was a Pulitzer finalist and played on Broadway with Robin Williams in the lead. He also wrote The Brilliant Animals Out of Paper, Gruesome Playground Injuries. His latest play, King James, is currently running at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. I mean, currently, if you're listening to this in March of 2022. I've wanted to talk to Rajiv for years, so here we are. This conversation was recorded at Steppenwolf Theater on March 2nd, 2022. Huge fan of this podcast. You listen to this podcast? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, I think it's great what you're doing, and um, I, I love every one of them. I mean, I haven't listened to all of them, but I but the ones I've listened to I, I, yeah, tremendous. I, I really like it. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's been a... Uh, it's, it's a really hard thing to keep doing sometimes because it's like this emotional roller coaster for me as a continuously aspiring you know continuously emerging playwright talking to the playwrights who are already I mean most of the playwrights I talk to I've had a string in the past year where it's like this one's won a Tony and a Pulitzer this one's won an Academy Award like yeah yeah um, Shanley Shanley yeah yeah. that was great Uh, but it's like uh, you know, I keep, I keep doing these, and it's just like God. That's the thing. So I mean, so. what what I feel, what I gotten out of so many of them is a sense of uh, comfort and like um, and shared comfort that sprouts from shared anxieties. Sure. You know, yeah. and shared sort of struggles. Yeah. And so I don't know. That's that's kind of cool. I and I, I, that's what it, it seems like a real resource to me. I get so much out of it, and I can't even imagine, like, if you know, if I taught, I don't, I don't teach right now, but like, you know, I, I would, it would be like required listening, you know, like because it's so good to listen to playwrights. I mean, I mean, it's, 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 it's so interesting to hear people talk about process and experience and, you know, the struggle and you know, as as it always is, no, no matter what. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, it's like. I agree. It's been hard. It's been even harder over the past couple of years because because of COVID. And, sure. and I really resisted at first when we first all got locked up in our houses, transitioning to Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, you did a few though, right? I did a few. Yeah. And I still, now I'm kind of like, I'll do it. I'll do it if I need to. Right. Like if we couldn't sit face to face like we are now, I would have been like, okay, well, can we do, right. can we do a Zoom I chat? was really, ha- I, I assumed it was Zoom. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I was, I was super happy that you were actually coming here. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 Like, I just, I just like this so much better. But I got so I was resistant to doing the Zoom, and then I started to do it out of desperation because I was like, I have no yeah. other, I have no other choice. Right. And uh, and I started to do it, and I was like, Oh, you find a way, right? You know, you find a way to connect because that's the whole point. Like, you listen to this thing. The whole point is not for me to like get a story out of you, right? right. Like, I'm not after something. I'm not a journalist. It's to just where we both have coffee. Mm-hmm. It's like to sit here and over coffee and have two playwrights talk about yeah, that's whatever. That's the uh, that's that's the best best case. Yeah, right. Exactly. We met. So this is. I want to get the one thing that's been in my head for years out of the way right away uh-huh. uh, because uh, we've met and we spent a few days together. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you have any memory of it, but it was in 2014 when yeah, we were at the Lark Playwrights Retreat yeah. at Vassar. And I was just, I had just graduated from grad school. Okay. And um, 
I won a thing, and part of the winning the thing got me invited to the Lark oh. retreat, which is why I was there. And I was amongst playwrights from my point of view, or these playwrights I admired. Right. You, know, you yeah, and yeah. Lucy Thurber and Kimberly and yeah, yeah. Matt Almost and Crystal, Crystal Skillman. Uh, and I was just like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, I was so so nervous yeah so nervous and it was before i had i had started doing this thing sure. where i started to talk to lots of playwrights and just get you comfortable and comfortable in my own skin and um so you were working on describe the night at the time mm-hmm. and i don't know if these were your first pages of it or where, where you were in the process but all i was thinking about was like brian don't embarrass yourself <laughs> brian don't embarrass yourself just like be cool fit in that kind of thing and uh, the structure of this retreat was you're on your own doing whatever you want until like two o'clock. We spend a couple hours together as a playwright group and read pages. Mm-hmm. And you were the first one to present pages on that first day where we, where we met as a group. And uh, you just, you know, like, like any playwright group, you're assigning roles to whoever was sitting around the table. Right. And uh, you assigned me a role, and I can't remember the character, but the character had the first line. <laughs> of the first scene. Right. And uh, so there was like stage direction to start the scene and then the line that I spoke. And I'm sitting there like so nervous and I'm just looking at the page and I'm like, just get the line out to speak clearly. Like, don't, right, don't embarrass yourself. And so uh, <laughs> stage direction's read. And this is one of those things, by the way, that uh, nobody else remembers, <laughs> right? Because it impacts you. Yeah. Yeah, and then nobody else has any memory of this thing uh-huh. happening. But but I have been carrying it with me since 2014. Uh, this <laughs> this moment of embarrassment. So uh, the, my line comes and I read it. I just like I have no clue what I said, but I just read it, and then everybody laughs or chuckles, uh-huh. and and I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I screwed something up. And I looked up and I was like, what, what? And somebody was like, no, that was just funny line. <laughs> and I was like, oh, son of a bitch. Do you remember what the line was? I don't remember what the line was. I remember what the line was. What, what was the line? It was described the night. That was the first line of the play. The reason that play is, <laughs> the reason the play is called Describe the Night, which was not my intention, was that the first line of the play is Isaac Babel saying, Describe the Night. Mm-hmm. As a result, the... The, the document that I saved to our kind of collective Google Doc, you know, whatever we do, was that the document was called Describe the Night, not because the play was called that, but simply because that was the first words that I had written. And then Lucy Thurber was like, oh, is your play called Describe the Night? And I'm like, no, 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 that's just the document name. That's and so then funny. she said, you should name, she didn't even know what the play was about. She's like, you should name your play that. And then I couldn't get it out of my head. And there it is. I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, that was, so that was like, to me, that was devastatingly embarrassing. Right. <laughs> and, and to anybody else, it's just like, anyway, moving on, right? Amazing. Um, but, so as I was like reliving this as I'm driving over here today, I'm realizing that that play, like I'm curious what's going through your head, having written that play and doing whatever research you did for right. that play. Right. And now here we are several years later in the context of the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I, I feel like because I researched that play as intensely as I did when I did, I was, I was writing it in 2014 and 15. Um, 
I learned a lot about Vladimir Putin and the history of Russia, you know, Russia's relationship with Eastern Europe. Um, in that play, it's more about Poland, but uh, there's a in the play there's a moment where Putin, as a young KGB officer in Dresden, has fallen in love with a woman who escapes when the Berlin Wall falls and the Soviet Union crumbles. And in the play, the the suggestion that I make, the artistic license I take, is that Putin swears that he'll rebuild the wall as a means to find this woman. And of course, it's not a literal woman, right? But it's a sort of spirit. And I truly believe that's what's happening, is that Putin, when the Berlin Wall fell, when the Soviet Union at last dissolved, was deeply offended and hurt and swore, if given the opportunity, that he would remedy that. He would, he would reclaim what he feels is rightfully, I would say, his, not Russia's. I don't believe that he's acting out of some sort of nationalist pride, even though he might couch it as so. Um, and we're actually seeing it happen in this moment. And it's terrifying. And it's, um, it's also remarkable. I mean, it, there's something so, there's, there's both what we're seeing right now happening in Ukraine is both the most modern war ever, in, not just because of it's, you know, that it's happening now, but in the way that we're learning about it, in the way that, it, the, that the information is being disseminated to the world and the way the world can react accordingly. And yet on the same time, it feels so retro. It feels like the 1970s and 80s again with tanks rolling into European cities, you know? It, I mean, it feels even longer ago than that, and it seems like something that you know, based on the, the United States' uh, engagements overseas, which have largely been in Middle Eastern poor countries, uh, that, that warfare would take place in these kind of places that, that we, 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 as a Western culture, struggle to relate with. And that's why they can take place there, because we struggle to relate so well, so much with what this place is and the people there that we will sort of forgive it. And here in Ukraine, a modern, you know, Western white country, uh, suddenly it's like, oh no, this is happening. And I think, you know, just from a purely, you know, <laughs> perspective of 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 that sort of rude awakening, it's it's having an effect on the way that people view it. Um, and then, just from my perspective, as when I was writing "Describe the Night," it almost feels like, um, yeah, I knew this guy was going to try something, you know. I knew he was never gonna rest. The question is like, where does he go from here? And I just, I was thinking about that on the way away over here. I was listening to The Daily, as I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, like, you know, I was trying to think of best case and worst case for Putin. And I didn't, and I'm like, I don't know which, which is which. That's the thing that's giving me the most anxiety about it, is uh, I can't conceptualize what the end looks like right you know like uh what's what is a face-saving move for him because they are you know they're not losing but they are losing they've lost in a way right you know they're moving forward but they've lost in the you know yeah and if if they if kiev falls and 
Russia takes over Ukraine tomorrow ent entirely, then what? You know, it's not it's not like these sanctions are going to end or people are going to reset and be like, okay, I guess you're Russia now and now we'll just go back to the way things were. I mean, they're so screwed. And um, I was thinking like the, the best case, you know, his best, <laughs> if I were him, I would fake my own death and go live on an island somewhere, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and let the world wonder, mm -hmm. which is what he does, you know? I mean, my play, Describe the Night, centers around one of the three kind of, there's kind of three circular stories that intersect, and one of them is about the Polish aircraft that crashed in, in 2010 in Smolensk, Russia, the, uh, an aircraft that was carrying the entire government of Poland, the president, the first lady, um, the heads of the banks, the heads of the military, they all died in Russia in 2010 in a, in a plane crash. And a lot of people think that Putin shot this plane down. A lot of people don't think that. A lot of people think it was an accident. And the fact of the matter is we probably will never know. The only thing that we do know for sure is that whether it was an accident or not, Putin would like the world to wonder. Mm -hmm. He's not dead set on clearing his name. Quite the contrary. He likes that there is confusion. He likes to think that the leaders of the world wonder if he actually shot that plane down. Mm -hmm. Because that will provide him an air of menace and unpredictability. And that's the thing that he thrives on. you know. Um, and then when you, when you control the media in your country, as he does mostly, uh, you can kind of you can succeed and, and, and live off of that. When you were doing your research for that play, did you run into the sort of like Putin origin story of you know the late 90s and how he rose to power? The only reason I ask is because as you were listening to The Daily this morning, I was listening to a rebroadcast of a This American Life episode uh -huh. that discussed this. So that's fresh in my head. No, right yeah, I th I'm sure I did. Um, I, I read a, a wonderful biography um, about him by Masha Gessen, who mm -hmm. is a, an incredible journalist and writer. It's called The Man Without a Face. And, um, and he, you know, it's interesting for a man who, you know, has ruled the largest country in the world for the past 20-plus years, how little we know about him and how little we know about his, you know, his peculiarities as a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems that especially in this day and age, like we, we, whether you love him or hate him, you you know the things that Trump likes and dislikes. You know the sound of his voice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I know he speaks mostly in Russian, but I, it's like I, I wouldn't recognize Putin's voice if I heard it. You know, mm -hmm. he is such an enigma and a, and a mystery. Yeah, he he allegedly similar to what you were talking about with the that plane crash in quotes. Uh, he orchestrated, they say, uh, these bombings in like 1999 in Moscow and some other surrounding towns um, to re-entangle them in a war with Chechnya. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a similar narrative where right. it's like, let them think that. Sure. Is it true? Mm -hmm. There's arguments that it's, it is true and there's some evidence that it might be and then there's you know, it's not clear, but let them think that because that will instill, instill fear. And we live in a world now, you know, in that no matter what is true or not true, 
you can guarantee that there will be a faction of people who will just say the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so as long as you can create confusion or create second guessing, which is, seems the internet was born to do, uh, you're going to find that it's easy to sort of disseminate or live in the state of confusion mm -hmm. as, as a politician, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, and those who attempt to rise above it struggle. Mm -hmm. Have you been to Russia? Yeah, I've been twice, uh, to Moscow only. I, I desire to go further in. And one of the, you know, heartbreaks for me this past week especially hasn't just been with Ukraine, but also with my friends in Russia. I know many theater artists there who I know oppose Putin and oppose this war and are going to struggle as a result of it. And um, my play Guards at the Taj has been produced in Russia several times mm -hmm. in translation and seems to have a lot of currency there as a piece of storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ukraine thing's hitting a little bit different for me because I know some Ukrainian oh, really? theater artists. Yeah, I've met them um, over the years in different travels that I've had to Poland. And uh, so I've been communicating with them about how they're doing and where they are. And um, it's so it's like you talked about at the beginning how this, how this war is like, it's both very, very modern and very, you know, entrenched in history, seeing the boots on the ground and the, the tanks rolling through. But we're able to communicate with people who are being directly impacted in real time. Right. And uh, it just it just hits different when you're talking to somebody you know and they're like telling you how scared they are and you are right. here, you know, five thousand miles away. Yeah. Like, how can I help? Right? The answer is you you, you directly cannot help. Right. And that, that feeling of powerlessness uh, gives me the slightest taste of the powerlessness that they're feeling right. as they're just people trying to live their lives and make art, be theater artists, and just live like we are able to do here. And um, so, like, war is devastating, and then when war becomes personal, it's, like, even, like, it's the whole other level. Yeah. Yeah, I had this dream last night. It's I'm not one to really interpret dreams, but it was like it was so easy to interpret. I mean, I was in a car and we were driving down a road, and we weren't driving fast. We weren't fleeing. We, we there was no tension within the car, but it was at night, and and all on the side of the road, we kept on passing passing factories that were on fire, and firemen running like screaming, trying to put all these fires out, and we kept passing more and more to the point where we were like, why are there so many fires? Mm. You know. And I woke up and I was like, that's what it feels like right now. It's like, I'm safe. At least it feels that way. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. But I mean, we are tucked away, a continent away, across an ocean. But we're, we're trying to relate and understand what's going on there. And I think I have a great deal of anxiety, but it's, it's you know, it's an abstract anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm not fearing for my life daily. I'm in tech for my play, mm -hmm. you know. So, but I, so it's like I'm driving past all these fires that have nothing to do with me per se, but that are, provi are, are giving me anxiety and making me worry what's going on in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. 
I think we're probably around the same age. Uh, so I wonder if you have any memory of what it was like in the eighties, you know, when all these nuclear movies were coming out, right, Yeah. you know, uh, I remember, I just remember distinctly, it might have been like middle school age when this one called The Day After Tomorrow or, yes. the, or something like that was like this, the first real sort of like quote unquote realistic, straightforward narrative about this is what yeah. it will look like if the, the Ruskies drop a bomb on us. Right. You know? Uh, and then Red Dawn. In Red, Red Dawn. This is what this feels like Red Dawn right now, especially with the Ukrainian for them, yeah. You know, volunteer army like kicking ass over there. It mm. feels very much like that eighties movie of like the Russians are, are landing and we're gonna hold our own in our you know, our high school. Did you yeah, do you remember watching that one as a kid? Definitely. I remember that I think it was like the first PG thirteen movie ever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I remember it being really scary, you mm-hmm. know? And uh and totally, you know, I, I, I kind of I lump that in also with another p- great piece of Cold War propaganda, Rocky IV, mm-hmm. you know, which was also came out around the same time, which was also like, when you watch it now, it's almost comical how, you know, nationalistic it is and anti-Soviet it is, but, um, but still kind of holds up as a, a piece of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are the things I've been thinking about. Yeah. You know, like this whole uh, being raised, thinking they're the ones that create propaganda, but we've been receiving it, (laughs) you know, the Gen Xers have been receiving it for our entire lives. Yeah, definitely. At least, I mean, we had a a respite in the 90s where the world fell safe. Yeah. In the pre-internet 90s where we didn't really, the information wasn't moving as freely. Yeah. but I just remember the 80s and being afraid of being bombed. Like, they're going to bomb us. Well, we're we used to have bomb drills. Yeah. And we had bomb shelters and uh, in our schools and stuff like that. And But again, it was very abstract, you know. But I, I don't think it was. I think if we were, if I had been a little older, it, wouldn't have, it would have been less abstract. I think mm-hmm. it would have been pretty terrifying. Um, but I remember feeling a lot more acutely afraid, not surprisingly, like in the post-9-11 days, not because of terrorism but because of nuclear war i remember thinking okay so if this is if 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 we're if we're up against a force that doesn't care about dying you know doesn't and doesn't care about a na- like a national security right meaning like islamic fundamentalism and if 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 the, if if in a, if like the taliban or something like the taliban were to overthrow the government of pakistan we could be facing that and it's, it all seemed like, like a domino theory that was all too likely, you know? And I remember thinking, oh, that's all this is going to take. Like, that's, and then I was thinking about that the other day with Putin. I'm like, is that his end game? Is he like, well, if I can't have my way, then fuck everybody? Because mm-hmm. I can see that happening too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you don't really know who you're dealing with with this guy, which is what makes it so un- unsettling. Mm-hmm. When you were, when you were, uh, a child in growing up in Cleveland and, and uh, you know, watching Rocky and Red Dawn and all that, were you, were you a writer? Were you a creative person? Were you no interested I, in anything not, artistic? I, not in any kind of actual way. I, I did theater as a kid. I was like in like musicals. We had a, 
we had a, uh, an awesome group that's still around in the area of Cleveland I grew up, the Heights, called Heights Youth Theater. And they did, and they, they had this incredible stage. It was like this middle school auditorium, Wiley Middle School, that had like a thousand seats and like had a fly space bigger than most uh, you know, off-Broadway or even Broadway theaters. It was incredible. Um, in fact, I learned a lot more doing tech work for them because I, 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 I did like acting, but I, I, I wasn't that great at it. Um, and there were other kids who were like who excelled at that much more. But then I started doing backstage work, and I would, I was deck crew, and I know I would fly scenery off, and I would you know, arm and <laughs> detonate flash pods. You know, I had fun doing that kind of stuff. And so I, I guess I, I had some ex- like, you know, passing experience with theater, but I never anticipated it being my life. I wasn't going to be an actor. I wasn't going to work in theater. When I once I went to high school, even it was kind of behind me. Um, and certainly in college, um, but as a kid, I think I was just a kid. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't gravitate towards writing or, or even artistic expression much um, until later in my life. So, how would you describe your, uh, say, like your high school years? Like, what were you, what were you into? In high school, I, I was, I guess I was, I sang in the choir in high school. I was part of the speech and debate team. Um, and, you know, that was it. I mean, I was kind of a slacker. Uh, didn't get great grades. I loved English class. And, that, and, I, and I, I was, like, unaware of my talent, I guess. Because mm-hmm. I did have a talent for writing and talking about literature. And I didn't even notice it. But like, I always knew that I liked those classes the best, and part of the reason I liked them the best is that I was better than other people at it. Mm. You know, like what came so naturally to me to talk about The Great Gatsby or William Faulkner, where everyone else was like, "What are you seeing in this?" And I was like, "It's it's obvious that the bear in the bear is not a bear." And they're like, "What well, you? It's a fucking bear." And I'm like, "No, <laughs> it's not. It's more than that." You know, and I, and it felt so you know kind of intuitive to me. But it took me a lot, it took me several years into college to like realize, oh, this is my strength. Like this is actually what I should pursue, you know? Was it self-realization or did you have somebody say, hey? A little bit of both. I mean, it was just at a certain point, because even when I went to college, I had this weird thing in my head of like, okay, now I'm going to college and now I figure out what I want to do with my life and how do I, what do I want to be in my life? Oh, I want to be a doctor, which was ridiculous because I was terrible at science. Like, I had never done well in any science class. I struggled through all of it. I didn't like them. But in my head, I thought, oh, I should be a doctor. <laughs> and so then I took, like, pre-med classes my first semester in college and almost failed out, you know? And so then I was, like, at my wit's end and then started to realize that, oh, the classes that I get good grades in without even batting an eye are English literature and writing classes. Were you, did you have conversations with your family about this sort of thing? Or were they allowing you to sort of find yourself on your own? Kinda, yeah. Um, that was it, mostly. I mean, it was, I was going to a liberal arts school, so it was expected that we were going to take a lot of different types of classes, and kind of, you know, it was it was normal there to be an undecided major well into your second year, you know. Um, but it was in my second year that I declared a major as a creative writing major and English major, and even as I declared it, 
was only declaring it to get into a class because it took only majors only. And I was like, I'll, I'll switch out of this major as soon as I'm done with this class. I just really want to take this fiction writing class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, you know, the die was cast. <laughs> <laughs> so wh- how, did, how did playwriting get triggered then? Playwriting didn't come along until I was in graduate school. I mean, I didn't write a play until I was 28 or something because I, I, I got out of school. I wanted to be a novelist in college. And, but in a very kind of, you know, unformed way. I went to the Peace Corps after college um, for a few reasons, but like one of them was like, I should do something so I have something to write about, you know? And um, I had an aunt and uncle who had both been in the Peace Corps. I had a couple of high school teachers that had been in the Peace Corps. So it had always been on my radar as this sort of awesome adventure you could do after Like Hemingway? Yeah, yeah. And, And something that wasn't like, it, it wasn't, you know, it, I didn't have to pay anything. You know, it was volunteer work. You know, there there seemed to be a degree of uh, prestige around it. You know, when you tell people you're going to the Peace Corps, it's not like, oh, you're going to slack off for two years. It was like, oh, that's pretty impressive. You're going to the Peace Corps. And I liked that aspect of it. And it was because it was something that was in my sort of wheelhouse. Like, the idea of going and living in rural Africa for two years appealed to me. It didn't not appeal to me, <laughs> you know, and then that it would be, that it would, might benefit my writing was part of that as well, and then I did a lot of writing when I was there, but mostly, like, I was writing in my journal, mm-hmm. you know, I tried to write, I wrote, a, like, a, a, a smattering of short stories, I tried to write a novel, I got back, and two of my buddies from college were now working in Los Angeles in Hollywood, and they knew me to be a writer, and they're like, hey, write a screenplay. So I started thinking about screenwriting, and that's when I had finally decided to go to NYU to be a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. The program at that time, I don't know if it's still like this, but at that time it was either screenwriting or playwriting. And you kind of did your first year, and in your second year you declared a sort of focus. I did my first year thinking I was a screenwriter, but by the end of it, I had switched over to playwriting. And that was due in part because I really liked the playwriting classes, but I also had, for the first time in my life, had started seeing contemporary theater. I hadn't before. I had seen musicals, like I said, but I had never seen an American playwright writing today's plays. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I saw Stephen Adler-Gyrgis's Our Lady of 121st Street and Lynn Nottage's Intimate Apparel. Mm-hmm. They're both out the same season. And it was like, it, they both had this kind of tectonic shift in me mm-hmm. and that's what uh that's that's so then I, I switch over to playwriting i want to go back to the to the peace corps for a minute uh so you you talked about having these i don't want to put words in your mouth but these reasons to go that were somewhat ego driven like or or selfish like I'm, I'm putting negative words on it and i don't mm-hmm. mean it in that way but like oh i can do this seemingly really altruistic thing right for two years but i can get something out of it i'm wondering how the experience sort of like i don't know intersected with your expectations and what you hoped it would be or thought it might be yeah i mean i i, I never had an altruistic approach to it and I don't think, I, I think anyone that does is, is severely disappointed in the experience. You know, it's not, it is, it is not uh, an errand in which you save the world or even a community. It's not that. Um, the, the best thing you can say about the Peace Corps in some ways is that we have very limited power. 
you know, mm. we are grassroots volunteers that are living in communities. And the best you can hope for, kind of, is to make relationships, you know. And then there's other work you can do, and that you that you that that there's work that I did, and that my my fellow volunteers did, and whether it has any lasting, you know, uh, value is 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 you don't even know, and it, it does in many cases. I mean, I met many government officials in Senegal who told me I learned math or I learned French from a Peace Corps volunteer, you know, um, and they changed my life, you know. So I know that Peace Corps does change the world on some level, but if you go into it with that kind of purpose, I think, mm -hmm. you, I think you're, you're setting yourself up. It would be like saying, I have to write a great American play today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it doesn't yeah. work like that, right, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so, um, in my mind, it was like, I went there f because out of a sense of adventure, out of a sense of like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with my life otherwise. Um, and I had this suspicion that I think, I think was kind of maybe right, which, which was that, you know, and that I think I hold to this day is that like, that growing up, being an adult can sometimes be a trap, you know, if you have ambitions beyond the normal heteronormative adult world, you know, like, you know, if you want to get married and have kids and have a nine to five job, great, that's great. But that's not, that wasn't on my mind. But I felt like I could fall into that quite easily if I just stuck around and just tried to get a day job and then fell in love. And next thing I know, that's my life. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, I want to have a different life. I, I want to have a life that is mysterious right now. Like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. And in that regard, Senegal changed me because you know, not only did I live in this extremely foreign place for three and a half years, I was there ultimately. Um, it did, it, it, it transformed my world view. And, and part of the purpose of the Peace Corps, like the, you know, the Peace Corps has three kind of objectives. One is to, you know, and this is roughly paraphrasing, but one is to like be an ambassador to America in this foreign country. The other one, is to do the, whatever technical work you're supposed to be doing there. And the third one is to be, is to bring your experiences and your, you know, exp, you know and, and your whatever wisdom you gain back to this country and be a citizen here that has a larger worldview because of that. To me, that's the most important one, you know, because that's, that's the one that, at least from, from my own solipsistic kind of like perspective, is the one that is, is lasting, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but like a hero's journey. Well, yeah. And it's like, yeah, you've, you've done something interesting and you've experienced, I think one of the, one of the traps of this country is that we, we are so isolated. And so we, we don't really know how other people live. And I, you know, my father is from India, so I had been to India a few times, but even those experiences were very much, they're, they're, they're family trips, you know? And, um, I wasn't really understanding that country that deeply until I you know, would go back as an adult and on my own kind of volition and, and explore a little bit more. But like, um, I needed something like Peace Corps to like kind of snap me out of my suburban Ohio you know, existence to that point. What was, what was it like upon return after three and a half years? So now I assume you're like in your mid twenties. Yeah, I, I returned when I was 26 and uh, it was much harder returning here than it was going there and adjusting there. 
because um, that was an adventure. That was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And I was with a bunch of other volunteers who were about the same age as me and then having similar kind of perspectives on the world and their lives. And I met friends there that I still have to this day. I come back to the United States um, and <laughs> and that's like that all that prestige that I thought the Peace Corps had, it didn't really amount to that much right away. It wasn't like it was getting me any jobs. It wasn't like people were really that interested in it. Um, and this was also a time of, you know, where I think the cultural temperature was highly incurious of the rest of the world. It was the Clinton years. It was just right before W was elected president. We were living, you know, off the fat of the land, as it were, very happy with ourselves as mm -hmm. a country. Mm -hmm. Things were about to change. And when they did, my experiences living in a mostly Islamic country actually brought me a lot of like, um, you know, insight into the world and I think helped me as a writer. So how did that connection get made from landing back in the U.S. at 26 and then getting to NYU at 28? I came back, the reason I moved to New York was I had one good buddy from college who was uh, living on the Upper West Side with his girlfriend and he basically said, hey, come stay with me until you find a place and I'll get you a job. And I was like, great. And he's, you know, what kind of friend does that? He, he, was, he still is one of my best friends in my, in my life. Um, and, and also my brother was attending Juilliard. My brother's a musician. He now plays for the Buffalo Philharmonic. And so he was in his, going into his junior year at Juilliard. And I was like, oh, this is a chance to meet around Dinesh and my buddy Dan. And I had some other friends that were there, and it's New York City. So you're like, hell, I'll, I'll move to New York. So I did, and I had my friend got me a job in like some kind of deadly boring dot-com corporate thing just as the dot-com bubble was bursting, you mm -hmm. know? Good timing. And, uh, yeah, but it got me a job, it got me some money, and then I got laid off after 9-11 like the rest of the city and uh, entered this year-long sort of process of really realizing, oh, my Peace Corps experience counts for nothing. I have almost zero work experience. I have a bachelor's degree in creative writing. Um, what the hell am I going to do with myself? And so I went to grad school. <laughs> and I went to NYU. Yeah, in a lot of ways, that's what uh, grad school's for, right? Yeah. It's yeah. The, uh, the catch all. And I will say that, like, I know that grad, grad school treats different people different ways, and people have all these different experiences with their programs, especially in dramatic writing. I would never, ever, ever in a million years be a writer if it weren't for the program I went through at NYU. It was absolutely essential. Like, I changed my life. It changed my way of thinking. It changed especially my writing in, in such important ways. I never would have been a writer if I hadn't gone to grad school. I, I'm, I'm interested to learn more about that, that switch. You went in thinking screenwriting, which makes sense because, you know, film is ubiquitous. Yeah. Everybody grows up watching movies, and that's like tantalizing right. I want to do that um, so seeing the Gerges play and Lynn Nottage's play mm -hmm. uh, that impacts you but how does that then manifest like how like what makes you think I want to write that mm. like did you decide I am gonna be I want to be poor for the rest of my life <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was part of it I I I was starting to wonder about that but I didn't see it I saw being poor 
the the one thing I the one argument I never understood is like the screenwriter being like, well, I don't want to be poor for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so what? So you're gonna sell a screenplay tomorrow? Like you're in just as deep shit as us. I mean, like, and the one thing I started realizing soon after graduate school was that in New York, at least, there were all these ways of of incrementally measuring your success as a playwright. Um, the Lark Play Development Center, you know, RIP was part of that, a huge part of that for me, but there were other theaters that would do readings, they would, there were fellowships, there was the retreat at Vassar that you know, was Lark based, but there was you know, New York Stage and Films, another great organization. So you could feel, psychologically speaking, oh, I'm doing something to further my career, I'm meeting people, people are interested in my work, I can hear my work being read out loud. There are no workshops for screenwriters, like that doesn't happen, you don't have screenwriting readings, you know, and unless you are an established writer-director who are, is about to make a movie, you know, and I felt that that was really important for me at that time. I had just turned 30, I was filled with self-doubt, and I needed that, and um, you know, the community, the, the theater community, as you know, is is a big part of why it is, a big part of its appeal, you know? Not just writing and being part of the theater, but the, the friends and the community yeah, that, that you make in doing yeah. it. Yeah. So how did that first then uh, connect for you? Like, like there's, a, there's a, such a, a straightforward way to approach screenwriting, particularly when you're just learning it. You know, there's this three-act structure. There's mm-hmm. a way you have to learn to do it. Uh, but for playwriting, it's not the same. So how did, how did your abilities as a creative writer sort of like connect to what's all open to you as a playwright? I don't know. I, I mean, I will say that, like, when you take screenwriting classes, like, you pitch an idea, and even back then, the the response to any idea is like, well, how how is this commercial? You know, how is this going to get made? How is this? And then, but the, you pitch any idea, no matter how wild it is, to a playwriting class, and everyone's like, ooh, that sounds so interesting. Like, it's never, it's never a naysaying culture, you know? It, the, the wilder and more crazy, the better. Not that it always stays that way. I mean, like, sure, theaters eventually kind of chicken out, and we're like, I don't get this play. But like, from, but from the, where, where you start in the, you know, at, at the very ground, grassroots level of being a theater artist, there's a general sense of, you know, let's be adventurous, let's be experimental, let's not work within a three-act structure. I mean, I never wrote in a three-act structure until I wrote a screenplay, you know. Um, the, and, and none of my plays are really using that model, do you know? And so, For sure, that's why I asked the question, because yeah. most of your plays seem to break the traditions yeah, but I think most plays do. I mean, I, I, I yeah. can't think of yeah, most yeah. plays that I really like that, that employ this, the kind of classic arc of a screenwrite, a screenplay, you know, the sort of 90 to 120 page kind of like, um, you know, they're, they're just different and you don't worry about it as much, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I like it. I, I don't, I'm not knocking the three-act structure or the, you know, but it's, and it's kind of a relief when you do write, when I do write a screenplay, it's like, oh, this is, I, I can see it. I, I, I see this, this structure. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, again, it, I think I was listening to your podcast with David Ajme the other day, actually, and, and, and I loved something he said, which was just like, I don't know where my ideas come from. Don't ask me. You know, it's, 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 I, and there was something about that, like the way he said that, that I was like, oh, it's so great because it's like there's a mystery behind why we, why we do this thing you know, writing plays, I mean, mm-hmm. 
you know, and within that mystery is a lot of insecurity, a lot of anxiety, because we're like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm writing about. I don't know how I came up with this idea. I don't know if this idea is any good. This is a weird thing. Um, and, and certainly no one is telling me you have to write this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In fact, if anything, they're telling me the opposite, and yet I'm going down this path. And I think that's why theater is interesting, because it's playwriting anyhow. It's that you, you're kind of, you know, you, you're swimming in open ocean, mm-hmm. you know? Something else David Ajmi said, and I can't remember if it was on mic or if it was another time, but it, taking comfort in, and accepting that it's a mystery and you don't have answers mm-hmm. in the creative yeah. process. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Because we find ourselves as playwrights in conversations with artistic leaders or dramaturgs or whoever or actors who are asking a lot of specific questions about our writing and sometimes the pressure is felt that we need to have an answer right. for them. But he said that it was this was instrumental for me as I was developing as a writer, hearing somebody accomplished telling me, it's okay to not have an answer. Don't if you don't have one, don't right. make one up. Right. Yeah. I I like that. I mean there's a there's a it's a it's a freedom, right? And it's but it's, it, it, it kind of runs contrary to everything we're taught in school <laughs> and everything that we're supposed to be doing as people in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, have a plan, know where you're going, um, get to the point. You know, it's, it's a, it, that, that's the worst thing, you know. Was there a moment for you uh, early on when you made that transition into playwriting where you started to feel like, yeah, I made the right choice, like this is clicking? Yeah, I mean, I got... Um, I got some immediate good feedback, you know, um, after grad school. Um, I was part of the mentor project at Cherry Lane, which was, that was a huge break, you know. Um, Teresa Rebeck was my mentor. And, um, you know, the, the mentor project, for people who don't know, it's, you know, new plays by, 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 by young and upcoming writers are submitted by other people. My, my teacher, Janet Nypris at NYU, submitted my play, Huck and Holden, to the to Cherryland Mentor Project. And then three established playwrights um, pick, you know, uh, you know, select one each, you know, and then act as a mentor for that writer. And, uh, you know, it was, Teresa was my mentor. I spent a year working with her, you know, and then they did a small black box production of it. And it was incredible. It was, it was, it was what an incredible experience to have right out of grad school. And giving me that sort of, you know, just that, that, that psychological comfort of like, okay, someone wants to hear this, you know? And, um, and also working with Teresa was great because Teresa, I learned a lot from her. And uh, she is a fierce and like uncompromising woman. And, and, and she's one of the hardest workers I've ever met. And like that, and she, so like she was a great model for me because I was like, you know, her, from her perspective, what I learned was like, fuck what anyone else says, work hard. And I was like, okay, I can do that, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think that like, I, I, I realized, I think early on, I was like, maybe not everything I write is gonna be great, but I'm just gonna keep doing it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write and write and write and like, and, and something will hit, you know? And, um, and, it's. I think I was the right age for that sort of approach, you know. Yeah. So I was. I was curious about that because 
uh, I found myself coming to playwriting in my early 30s and my age and my experience leading up to that I found to be very helpful in grounding me and uh, and not uh, just allowing me to hear things that I may not have heard right you know like the kind of like feedback that you may have gotten from Teresa Raybeck I'm curious if you feel the same way that like having this experience through post-grad life through your 20s put you in a place where you were more receptive and yeah. better able to handle the environment definitely I mean I, I I would not have thrived in graduate school right after college you know um, and I, I wouldn't have been ready for this career any earlier than I got it um, and uh I, like I said, when I was in graduate school, I, was, I went in when I was 28, came out, I was 30. And I, and I knew as soon as I went in, when I got out deep in debt with an MFA in dramatic writing, I would be 30 years old. And that was like additional terrifying information. And my best friend from grad school is a guy, Scott Rothman. We were pretty much the same age. He was married, his wife wanted kids, and he was in the same position as me. And, and we were like, we are in this to win it. Like we basically put all our chips on the table and we're like, we're going for it. And there were a lot of the other students in our, in our program were much younger than us. They had come right from undergrad. And their sense of urgency was not the same as ours, it felt like, at least to me. And that bonded us. And um, we worked, we challenged each other throughout school. We set deadlines for each other. He was definitely a screenwriter, not a playwright. I was become a playwright. And then you know we, we did our own work. And he, he ended up selling screenplays. I ended up getting these things in theater. And then 10 years later, we collaborated um, on a screenplay called Draft Day that was actually made. And, um, and he and I have been kind of screenwriting partners since then, um, which has been a delight, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's been this great kind of NYU story of like, there's a, a screenwriting guy, a playwriting guy, 10 years later they collaborate, they make, you know, we've had two movies made, we've done a bunch of rewrites, and you know, we, we're a good team, you know? So I love, that's a, one of those happy stories, but it was, it was born out of a sense of, you know, we were same age and similar sense of panic, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. going going ahead of our in our lives. Uh, famously, to me anyway, <laughs> you are a, a Cleveland sports fan. Yes, and uh, I'm a Boston sports fan, but right. Cleveland, I've always rooted for Cleveland mm. because. You know, I just I, re I just remember the fumble in the late '80s. You rooted for Cleveland in the way that someone roots for a dying animal. I well, because I was a Boston Red Sox fan right. growing up. I was a New England Patriots fan growing up. Like yeah. I, I empathize, so I've kind of watched <laughs> this and uh, watched the you know the Cleveland Cleveland teams throughout until LeBron hit. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of almost making it and then not quite making it. And then, and then my team started to like win all the things, you know, in my adult years. Right. Um, so I kind of seek out uh, as a sports <laughs> fan, I seek out the other teams that were like my teams as a kid. And, right. you know, Tampa was one of them. And then Tampa won the Super Bowl like 20 years ago. And, uh, and last year. And then last year with Tom Brady, obviously. Uh, but um, Cleveland is that, is like the Browns are that team. Yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, it, like, if if you if you took any sort of like special, if there was any special feeling associated with writing a a movie about your hometown <laughs> team, and like were you kind of like, I don't know how like 
when you write a screenplay, like you're oftentimes not so emotionally invested in the story yeah. in a personal way, right? Uh, did, were you personally invested in this story well, because of that? It's a, it's a great question, and it's a much more complicated answer than you would think. Um, the, when Scott and I had this idea for writing a, a, a script about the NFL draft, it had to be a team like the Browns. It had to be a, a small market franchise that had always struggled. But I, as a writer was way too superstitious to write about the Browns because I just thought no guy writes about his favorite sports team and then makes that movie. So I was like, <clears throat> to have a sort of like artistic you know, distance, we, did, we, we wrote it about the Buffalo Bills. Mm -hmm. And um, I, my brother lives in Buffalo. He plays for the Philharmonic there. It's sort of a sister city to Cleveland. They're both on the shores of Lake Erie and both are these kind of blue collar cities that live and die by their sports teams and are struggle as a result. And... We wrote it for the Bills, and then once the movie got legs and got a director and stars, uh, simply for tax purposes, <laughs> the, the, the Ohio Film Commission was offering all these tax breaks. Oh, that's brilliant. And so they're like, well, what about the Browns? Would you like to do it about the Browns? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, it was like, I, I made my dream come true by, like, not aiming for the Browns, you know? It was like, it was incredible. And so, like, to answer your initial question, to have to write a movie about my favorite football team in my city and have it shot there was like, it was like three dreams come true at once. Mm -hmm. It was also my first movie. I mean, it was, it was an incredible, incredible experience to, to be shooting that movie in Cleveland, you know, with this, when you look at the cast on that movie, it, it is stunning. I mean, mm -hmm. it started Kevin Costner. It also had Chadwick Boseman, Frank Langella, Ivan Reitman directed it, who died a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, Jennifer Garner, Ellen Burstyn. Uh, it, it's just like, how did this happen, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed that, that experience. Um, and, did Cleveland, uh, the city, embrace the film and the, the filmmaking? They did. They loved us because at the same time, they were filming Captain America there, and Captain America shut down the shoreway, which is like, I don't know what the Chicago equivalent would be, but it would be like shutting down one of the major like expressways for the Lake summer. Lakeshore Drive. Lakeshore yeah. Drive for the summer. And like, everyone's like, the hell with this? And then meanwhile, there's this smaller kind of like upstart movie with Kevin Costner about the Browns. Like, they loved us, mm -hmm. you know? And all the sports networks, like the, the, the news stations, the sports radio, they were even in it. Like, we, we cast them in it because we needed radio people, personalities. And it was a real... You know, it was a lovely experience. We we had a premiere in Cleveland, um, as well as L.A. and New York. And you know, I met the mayor. I met the owner of the Browns. I was like through the looking glass, man. Mm -hmm. It was. I, I was it, it won't get any better than that in my career. I, I don't think it mm -hmm. just. It was. It was way too like. I couldn't have if I had told my thirteen-year-old self this is what's going to happen to you someday. I mean, my 13-year-old self would have been first like, wait, I'm not going to play professional football? Is that what you're telling me? And I'm like, no, you're not going to play professional football, but you are going to write about football. And yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, there's, I wonder if your 13-year-old self was uh, conscious of Robin Williams because you also, adult you, had some interaction with him too, which must have been a little mind-blowing. That was, and in fact, um, when we were in rehearsals for Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which Robin starred in on Broadway, my mom found this paper I wrote in the eighth grade that it was like, who are your heroes? Mm -hmm. And I wrote about 
Robin Williams and Bernie Kosar, who was the quarterback of the Browns. And Bernie had a cameo in draft day. So I ended up working with both those guys, um, which was, again, pretty surreal. But yeah, Robin was a hero and, uh, you know, kind of remains so. And he was an incredible guy to work with. I feel so fortunate to have had that experience. They filmed Jumanji, the original, <laughs> in my hometown. Really? And, uh, and I had just... I had just gone away to undergrad, and my town, Keene, New Hampshire, not a big, it's not Cleveland, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a big, it's right. not a big city. Films don't get made there. Captain America is never going to be in, in Keene, but I leave, I go to school, and Robin Williams, who's like my favorite, favorite, is in my town in the newspaper. <laughs> the town newspaper is like running stories every That's day. That's amazing. Here's <clears throat> him in his jungle yeah. outfit, and my mom is like mailing the newspapers to me so I could see and I was just like it was kind of like super exciting and devastating at the same time that I couldn't just go be there to watch all of this happen uh but they kept elements of that film in my town like they they had to paint some things on the walls for like advertisements for in the movie and they just Mm -hmm. kept them there oh nice so when when he passed I think in 2014 right yes um these memorials were popping up hmm. like there was a memorial for where goodwill hunting the bench scene in, oh. in the public garden was shot uh with him and matt damon the memorial was set up there a memorial was set up in keen uh at the where this advertisement on the brick wall is still existing from jumanji you know from 20 wow. years earlier um and that was really that was really moving to see um but anyway, so when you said before about uh, thinking about like 13-year-old you and writing Jaff Day and then the story about the letter and talking about Bernie Kosar, uh, now you're, you have this play that uh, <laughs> is you know, ostensibly about the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James. Right. Um, are you also going to write a story about the, uh, the Cleveland Guardians? <laughs> right? Are you going to hit every sports team? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, why not? I mean, it's, (laughs) I, sports is a real important thing for me. And as a, as a kid, it was, and then growing up it was, but as I grew up and I became, you know, I think a a more thoughtful person and, you know, someone that wants to examine human behavior, sports really confuses me, you know, especially as a fan, because it's so irrational. And it is, it's entertainment, I get that, but it's so much more than entertainment. And that's what confuses me. It's that my, my moods can be swung so dramatically, you know, mm-hmm. as a, you know, as a person whose life is pretty good and is a mature person for the most part, like that I can lose my temper or be depressed for a long period of time as a result of the exploits of these athletes who are you know, half my age. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and it just makes me wonder. And I, and I, and I wonder about how that relates to identity, um, both on a personal level, but also identity of a community. And, and also, you know, the identity of a nation, which, which we see a lot um, in a real troubling way when you think about, you know, the way that the National Football League has been militarized the flap about Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem. I mean, there's a lot of politics ingrained and intertwined in our sports culture. And, uh, and, and you tribalism. See, tribalism, yeah. 
and and yet you know it's it's interesting because for the most part you know you you go to these games and it's there's a real sense of community and um you know i got when when the brooklyn nets came to brooklyn i was living in brooklyn and i was suddenly excited that there was the first professional team in brooklyn since the dodgers and they were building barclays arena and you know jay-z was part owner and it just seemed like this is going to be cool and i ended up having this random discussion with Robert O'Hara, the playwright and director, who's a friend of mine. I had gone over to his place one day to hang out, and we were, uh, I had passed by the construction site of Barclays, and I said, Robert, we should get Nets season tickets together. And he's like, I don't even like basketball. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not about basketball. It's about this cultural phenomenon. And I started talking out of my ass. Next thing I know, he's like on the phone. He's like, I got that guy from the Nets. And I was like, wait, we're actually doing this? And so then that's how Robert O'Hara and I became season ticket holders for the Nets for four years. And in going to the games with him, we didn't always go with each other, but like we went a lot of times together. And especially in the beginning, knowing that he didn't know anything about basketball at first, he became a pretty rabid fan eventually. I started seeing these games as theater. And I was kind of seeing them through Robert's eyes. And really, especially basketball games, but all sort of professional events, you know, in, in an arena like Barclays, you have lighting, you have sound, you have DJs spinning, you have dancers at timeouts, you have other sorts of circus entertainment, people doing flips, people doing, you know, slam dunk contests. That's all not even the center of the, of, of the entertainment, which is these, you know, world-class athletes, you know, dancing around. And then you have the celebrities in the audience, and you know it's the national anthem, the pageantry, the pre presentation of colors. Um, in Barclays, they did it so interestingly. I mean, every day, the, the, every game, it was a different type of person doing the national anthem, and every time it was different. And they always seemed to reflect the kind of, you know, diversity of Brooklyn. You know, and I really started thinking about these games from a th from a theater artist perspective. You know. And that's kind of what led to King James, is that there's a lot more going on than just, you know, testosterone. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, as you say, tribalism, but also a real sense of community and pageantry and entertainment. And, you know, we are creating this ritual that means a lot to people because it reflects their community and it reflects their sense of themselves. I don't think there's anything wrong about that. I just find it really fascinating. Do you think there's a, do you think there's a version of you in the future that is less invested in all of that? Yeah, I mean, I, yes. I, I think I'll always be a sports fan, but I, it, I, have, I have diminished my fanhood considerably over the years, just in the sense that, like, right now, I, I really only care about pro football and pro basketball. I, I used to be a huge baseball fan, and I'm so much less of a baseball fan now. And not because I'd like the sport any less, I just stopped caring. And then I used to love March Madness, NCAA, and I stopped doing that mainly because I was like, if I get into it, I'm screwed for all of March, and I just don't have the time, so I'm just not going to get invested. It was kind of a conscious choice not to and um so i pick and choose my battles really carefully like in the way that any older man does it's like okay i can't do everything so i'm gonna i'm gonna pick this the very <laughs> pick my shots as it were and and do that 
I'm with I'm with you. I've, I've, I'm on a similar journey. I've gone from being a season ticket holder for the Red Sox. Oh and, wow! And uh, obsessed with the Patriots, and I'm consciously trying to like extricate it from my life. Yeah. And uh, I football for some reason is like is like a drug. It's yeah. really weird how uh, I'm much easier. It's much easier for me to sort of separate myself from baseball which I was way more invested in. Right. Uh, but I, but Sundays come around and I am maybe not watching it, but I keep picking up my phone. I keep checking it. And like you said, there is a feeling of devastation Mm -hmm. that carries through the week. Yeah. Yeah. Or more. And it's just like, why? Because it's, it's such an unhealthy sport. And it, it, you know, the thing about football is that every game matters so deeply. Yeah. You know, so there's no small games. And I was reflecting on this the other day is that when the football season ends, like the day after the Super Bowl, how depressed I am. Mm. I'm like, no more football until September. That's terrible. You know? <laughs> and I was like, I was also reflecting on how, like, I really don't like generally like Sundays or Mondays. Like, they're just depressing days. But football inverts that. Like, suddenly Sundays and Mondays are awesome because of football, mm-hmm. you know? They, and, and I don't know. I mean, I feel the same as you. I, I do think there's an irrational aspect to this, um, but it's worth exploring, I guess. But yeah, football is the worst. I'm, I'm mostly a football fan. Like, that's my number one sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but basketball has a lot more... Basketball is more culturally interesting in the moment right now, in part because of its, its international presence, the international stars they have playing for it. The fact that you can see the players, you know, like football players are in armor. You don't mm-hmm. even know what many of them look like. Mm-hmm. But like we, these, these athletes on NBA arenas, are, they're so beautiful and they, they're, they're out there kind of, you know, with, with, with all their physique, you know, on display. And it's, it's, it, it really, that, that has a totally different appeal to it. I love that we started off talking about war in Ukraine <laughs> ended up on NBA basketball. I mean, it's <laughs> the sort of career arc I had going right now. <laughs> Thank you to Rajiv for talking to me. It was a big shock to hear he was a fan of the show, but so damn nice to hear him say that. Go see any play he writes. And if the play is still running, go see King James at Steppenwolf in Chicago. It's scheduled to run through April 10th, 2022. Thank you to the team at Steppenwolf, particularly the great PR team of Elizabeth and Nicole. Thank you to American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. The music from this episode is by John Watts. The theme song from the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. Have any of you purchased their album on iTunes? I hope so. Thanks, as always, to associate producer KJ Jarbo, which reminds me, we have several very, very different episodes coming out soon. One of them, KJ and I have been working on for over a year, if you can believe that. I hope that comes out in the next couple months. And I just recorded an episode in front of a live audience for the first time. That happened back on March 5th in Madison, Wisconsin. It was an amazing experience, so keep your ears peeled for that one. All right. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Resurrection. 
by Jordan Elizabeth Henry. It's a great play. You can buy a copy from Next Stage Press.